Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to end up back in James, and Lord willing, next week we'll be back in 1 Corinthians. But um, we're going to start in Genesis 22, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. So Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, says this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in, the, uh, in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, uh, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in your offspring shall the nations, all the nations of the earth, be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need today. Even as we just sang that we can take it to the Lord in prayer. We also believe not only can we talk to you, but that you speak to us through your word. And so we pray that you would feed us from your word today, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll tell you a little bit of church history, as is my habit, I guess. Um, Charles Templeton, he made a profession of faith in 1936 at the age of 19, and he started doing evangelistic work, in, um, and that continued for three years of his early days there in his native Canada, as well as really throughout several northeastern states. 
1941, he founded a church in Toronto with his family and, and a few friends joined him. At their first service, they had 112 people in attendance. Within six months, the 1,200-seat building was full, even on Sunday nights, and many people had to be turned away. In 1945, he met Billy Graham backstage at a Chicago Youth for Christ rally at the Chicago Stadium. There were 20,000 teenagers in attendance at this rally. And these two evangelists became quick friends and would continue for some time as ministry partners. Well, once as Graham was being introduced to preach at a place where they were sharing the stage together, he leaned over to Templeton and said, pray for me, Chuck, I'm scared to death. Billy Graham looked up to Charles Templeton. But by 1948, Charles Templeton's life and his worldview were beginning to go in a different direction than Billy Graham's. Doubts about the Christian faith were growing in his heart and in his mind, even as he planned to enter Princeton Theological Seminary. Less than a decade later, in fact, in 1957, he would publicly declare that he had become an agnostic. Well, 50 years later, reporter and author Lee Strobel had an opportunity to interview Charles Templeton. Templeton was in his 80s. He was beginning to suffer from Alzheimer's, but for the most part, he was still able to hold a clear conversation. And so in his book, A Case for Faith, Strobel recounts part of their conversation. Strobel writes this. He says to Templeton, And how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed a, a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. It sounds like you really care about him. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life came his reply. I, I, he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough. Look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Ah, uh, but no, he said slowly. 
He's the most. He stopped and then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raised his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear, and after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively and finally, quietly but adamantly insisted, enough of that. In 2001, this former evangelist, ex-pastor, close friend of Billy Graham, died in unbelief, missing Jesus. How do you know if someone is saved? Charles Templeton made a, he made a public profession of faith and, and really did some incredible works for the kingdom, frankly, that you or I will probably never do. And he died in unbelief. What does it mean to have faith? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith alone. No doctrine is more important to evangelical theology than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's the, the Reformation principle of sola fide. Martin Luther rightly said that the church stands or falls on this one doctrine. We are saved by faith alone. But James chapter 2, verse 24, almost seems to contradict this. James 2.24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So which is it? Faith alone or not by faith alone? Well, it's, it's both. See, Paul is concerned with our confidence in our own justification at the beginning of the Christian life, and James is writing about our confidence in our salvation when we are well into our Christian life and, in fact, approaching the end. So let's read today's passage, James chapter 2. And look at the examples of true faith that James gives us, and, and hopefully this will all come together. So turn over now to James chapter 2. We'll spend the rest of our time here. I'm going to read again this week. We've read it for a couple of weeks now. Verses 14 to 26. We're going to focus starting in verse 20 to the end. But starting in verse 14, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, we started um, to answer this question last week. But as I said, as I mentioned last week, verse 20 kind of goes really with the verses that follow it. So the question that we started to answer that last week that we're going to continue to work on this week is verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so in order to answer that question, James gives them two examples of faithful people from their own historical heritage. And he starts with the most logical, kind of most obvious example, Father Abraham. So let's look at what he has to say about Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith. Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? In this, James is now moving from the hypothetical that we saw a couple of weeks ago when he said, imagine, essentially, imagine somebody comes into your church and he moves to the historical. Everyone knew who Abraham was, and everyone would have known this specific account of Abraham and Isaac, the account that we just read. Listen again. I want to read a couple of those verses again from Genesis 22. I'm going to read just verses 12 to 14 so that we can get the point of James's argument, okay? So verse 12 of Genesis 22 says this. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. James is telling us that it was Abraham's obedience of being willing to sacrifice his only son that justified him in God's eyes. Does that mean, if we put this together, does that mean that Abraham was saved at that moment? That he became, to use our language now, that that's when he became a Christian? That that's when he became a a God follower. That moment that he held the knife over his son and God said, don't do it. Does this mean that you're only saved the moment you obey God in some kind of strenuous act of extreme devotion? In 1511, Martin Luther, while climbing on his knees up those marble steps in one of the churches in Rome, He had an epiphany. 
He finally understood that he was trying to earn his salvation through these through strenuous acts of devotion. And one verse popped into his head. It was Romans 1.16, which says, it's actually a quote from Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by faith. See, James is saying that Abraham was able to prove that his faith was real because he was willing to act on it. He gives an example of an experience Abraham had long after God had already, God has already declared him righteous because of his faith. See, this event in Genesis chapter 22, it takes place in the life of Abraham about 25 years after Genesis 15 verse 6, in which God says, or Genesis 15 6 says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He put his faith in the Lord, and God counted it to him, credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham proved 25 years after that, 25 years after believing God, he proved that he was a doer of the word and not a hearer only when he obeyed God's command to offer up Isaac. He proved it. Martin Luther, as I said, he was trying to earn his salvation by doing acts of strenuous devotion. That's when he realized the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham was living by faith and he proved his faith when he was obedient. And God said to him in Genesis 22 verse 12, Now I know that you fear God. We might say, Now I know that you are a Christian. I can see it. I can see it in your life. I can see it in your lifestyle. I can see it in your actions. I find it interesting that that nowhere in Scripture um, does the Bible actually expound on God's request of the sacrifice of Isaac. One reason for this, there's a couple, but one of the reasons for this is because it's such a foundational event for the rest of Scripture, right? This is a story as much about what God's, God wants as what he doesn't want. See, unlike the, the false gods of all the other nations, all the nations around Abraham, the God of Abraham wants genuine faith that can be demonstrated, not the sacrifice of children, Incidentally, just sort of as a side note, as we consider the sacrifice of children, we are living in a society whose prophets and missionaries are screaming their demands for the sacrifice of children. Let's move to verse 22, because this verse is key to understanding James's context and his argument. So James 2, verse 22 says this, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So there are, there are two characteristics of Abraham's faith that we can see, really just from this one verse. The first characteristic is that Abraham's faith is a growing faith. James point, points out there that his faith was active along with his works. That means that his faith was ongoing. Abraham was always and constantly growing in his faith. It's true that when you read through the accounts of, as you consider Abraham, right? 
many of you have read through the book of Genesis. You, you know Abraham's life. You have a kind of an understanding of how he lived. And it is true that when you, when you read through the accounts of his life in Genesis, you will see a man that is not perfect. You will see a man who repeatedly failed in his trusting of God in specific circumstances. And I can tell you that I am so thankful for that. You can see this in all the great men of God from the scriptures. They failed. They sinned against God and God alone, as David says in Psalm 51. But you will also see, as you look at Abraham, a man who trusted God ultimately, a man who believed in the promises of God. And that's what faith is supposed to look like. It must work itself out in our daily lives. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. It is a lifetime of growing in obedience toward God, a lifetime of growing in holiness, a lifetime of growing in Christ-likeness. Our faith must be a growing faith. We will have setbacks. We will sin and fail. We will fail one another and our God but our faith must be a growing faith. There's a statement that's often said about churches, and it goes like this, if you're not growing, you're dying. I believe it's true of the Christian life as well. I believe there's no such thing in the Christian life as being mostly dead, right? Because being mostly dead is to be slightly alive, and that's impossible. You can't be slightly Christian. If you're not growing in your faith, then there is a very good chance that you're dead. Our faith must be a growing faith. And then the second characteristic of Abraham's faith was that it was also a mature faith. Now, obviously, this is, this is related to the first, a, a growing faith. He is, he's even growing to maturity his growing faith could not be seen as mature, however, until he acted on it, until he lived it out. Now, now think about this, uh, parents. We do this all the time with our kids, right? We give them more and more responsibility until one day we let them go because they've grown to maturity, which I'm finding out is harder than it seems, Abraham's willingness to obey God, even in the most difficult circumstances, not, not only showed his faith to be real, but that it had actually grown to maturity. Flip back, a, I know I told you we were going to stay in James, but turn back a couple of pages or towards, towards Genesis a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 11. It's just a couple pages back. I want to read a couple of verses. Hebrews 11 verses 17 to 19. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Have you ever considered that? 
Abraham's faith, according to Hebrews 11, verse 19 right there, Abraham's faith was not a mindless faith. It was a faith that matured to the point that he considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. God had not promised that explicitly. He had not said, go and sacrifice Isaac, and after you do, I'll give him back to you alive. He hadn't said that at all. He just said, go. God had not promised anything except what we read there in Hebrews 11, verse 18, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham believed that promise, the promise of God. But Abraham's mature faith trusted in those, in that promise, in those promises of God. And he tells his men in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, I don't know if you caught this, but he says in Genesis 22, 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Do you hear it? He's saying, we will return to you. This is what a mature faith looks like. Without action, our faith cannot be mature, cannot be complete. Without action, there will be no perseverance through our difficult trials. Without a sustained perseverance as Abraham had, your faith will not be considered complete. And an incomplete faith is a dead faith. Or at least is it very real danger of being a dead faith. Verse 23, again of James chapter 2. Verse 23 says this, And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Notice it says, Scripture was fulfilled. The prophecy was fulfilled. In other words, his profession of faith, Genesis 15, verse 6, which says Abraham believed God, that was proven in Genesis 22, 12, when God said, now I know that you fear God. Abraham's willingness to be obedient, even to the point of death in the sacrifice of Isaac, was evident that his, that his earlier profession of faith was real, because he would do anything for his God, his God who is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. Abraham was willing to put it all on the line. He had been called by God. He had waited many years, decades, for a promised son. He'd lived a life of literally following God's leading. Go to a land I will show you, a land that you don't know about, that you've never seen, but I will show you. He had literally followed God's leading, and all of this was put to the test, and it was proven genuine. His faith is real, and it can be clearly seen. Abraham didn't know how it would all work out, but he believed, he trusted, he put his faith in in God's yet-to-be-revealed plan of salvation, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That means that he was faithful to the covenant When we trust God for salvation, our belief, our trust is counted as righteousness. Not because we are faithful, not because we fulfilled promises, 
but because Jesus fulfilled the new covenant, because Jesus kept his promises, because Jesus gives us life in him. This is important because James doesn't stop here. Because he also says, not only does he say there in verse 23, it was counted to him as righteousness, it also goes on to say, and he was called a friend of God. A friend of God. This isn't a buddy. (laughs) Um, Christians are not buddies with God, right? I don't know what buddies do. Sit on the porch and tell jokes. Abraham became an intimate confidant of God. God did not hide his plans from Abraham. He told him, for example, he told him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God not only dealt with Abraham legally, justifying him, it says, declaring him righteous, but he also dealt with him personally. He initiated a relationship with him and treated him as a friend. Do you know that this is available to us? That for all whom he has called? Jesus even said, from now on I call you friends. So often we pick one or or the other. We focus on God's friendship and we forget his calls to obedience and, and holiness. We can't approach a holy God in the same way that we get together with our buddies, right? Sometimes we go the other way and we focus on God's word. We focus on righteousness and piety, good things, right things. We should focus on those things, but we forget sometimes that God actually desires a personal relationship with him. A unique relationship, a Relationship that is based on faith and it is proven through obedience. Abraham's faith was a growing faith and a mature faith. And God changed his legal eternal status from condemned to justified. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who have been justified. And he changed their relationship from enemy to friend. And Abraham proved all of this through his obedience, through his works. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the verse that looks looks so much like it is opposed to Paul's teaching. He writes, Paul writes of of salvation by faith alone often, especially in Romans and, and Galatians. And so which is it? Well, one author put it this way, and this will resonate with some of you. One author said this, Paul is speaking of obstetrics, how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, how a Christian life grows and matures and ages. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved if our faith is alone. Listen to this verse 24 again. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. James is returning here to his main point yet again, and it is this. It is through our actions that we prove the reality of our profession of faith, of our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I know I keep saying this over and over, but there is no more important message for the church to hear. Because without this message, the next one that you very well might hear, do you remember what Jesus warned? Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for his devil, the devil and his angels. Depart from me, for I never knew you. That's a warning for those who don't have an active faith. That's a warning for those who think they're okay, but do not really know Christ. Our actions prove the reality of our faith. I have a, I have a sign hanging in my study at the other building. Um, it's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I got it a couple of years ago. Um, it says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. I'm, I'm going to keep hammering these messages home until we start to get it, until I start to get it. <laughs> our works, our obedience, our love for one another prove that our faith is real. And if you don't have those things and you're claiming to be a Christian, the very real danger is that we're deceiving ourselves. But James now gives us a, a second example of a faithful life, and it's, it's not what we would expect. Look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, Rahab's story is told in uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. We're not going to turn there this morning. But just to remind you, she was an inhabitant of the city of Jericho, which was condemned by God and given to the people of Israel. But Rahab became a believer through hearing the accounts of, of God's mighty acts on behalf of his people. See, Rahab believed and she acted on that belief. And because of her belief, when the spies came from Israel, she put them up. She hid them when her own king sought them. And eventually she helped them escape. And James starts verse 25 with, in the same way. Well, I want to point out the elephant in the room as we consider these two examples. There is virtually nothing the same between Rahab and Abraham. Rahab differs from Abraham in almost every way possible. Abraham was wealthy. He was a, a, a generally a very moral man. He had his moments, but he was generally a very moral man. He was the father of the Jewish nation. He was also a very prominent leader, and at times he even had the ear of kings. Rahab, on the other hand, was most likely poor. She was an immoral woman. She was a Canaanite outcast. She was a nobody in her society. She was, as James calls her, the prostitute. That is a classic sinner in New Testament terms. Why on earth would James use her as an example? Why not another patriarch? Why not David? Why not Moses? Why not Joseph or Joshua? I think because Ahab, uh, Ahab, Abraham and Rahab... They represent extremes on both ends of society. 
See, everyone from the greatest leader to the most humble outcast need to live lives that are transformed in order to demonstrate the genuineness of their faith. Along with the famous and celebrated ancestor of the Jewish people, the friend of God, James includes an obscure Gentile woman of low moral character. James' message is this. Anyone is able of acting on his or her faith, patriarch or prostitute. Faith is about hearing God's words and doing them. The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And so this brings us to our faith, your faith. Verse 26 For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Your faith. Does your faith work? This verse answers really James' original question in this passage back in verse 14, which says, what good is it? Can, Can that kind of faith without works, can it save? No, a dead faith cannot save, James is saying. But let's flip this around as we finish up this passage. For, for those of us here who, who, who have a, a living and active faith, I want to give you some assurance that your faith is real. So, four points of application this morning. Number one, do not give yourself assurance that your faith is real by asking yourself, have I professed faith in Christ in the past? Instead, ask yourself this question. Am I trusting in God for salvation even right now? Am I trusting in the promises of God even today? Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23 says this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Hold fast, because Christ is holding fast to you. Are you trusting in him right now for salvation? Then keep trusting in him, remembering that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Second, is the Holy Spirit working in your life? There's a lot to this, and we're running down the clock here. But one of the ways in which we know that the Holy Spirit is working in our lives is by the fruit that is being produced. Are you growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness? Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Would others agree with your assessment? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are you willing to repent for sins and forgive others? Is the Holy Spirit working in your life? Third, you can have assurance in your faith um, 
have assurance in your faith in the promises of God through your obedience to his word. So Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he wasn't just talking about the red letters, right? And some of our, maybe that's an older thing now. I have a red letter Bible and I kind of like it. But he wasn't just talking about that. He's talking about the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments. Listen to how David describes God's law in Psalm 19, verse 10. More to be desired are they, that is God's statutes, than, fi- than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What is your attitude towards Scripture? Do you love God's law? Are you willing to obey the word of Christ? And then finally, the fourth kind of point of application here. You can have an assurance of your faith if you see a pattern of growth over time. This goes back to Abraham. As Christians grow, not just in Bible knowledge, but we grow in spiritual maturity. Can you look back over your life since you have trusted in Christ and seen a pattern of growth? doesn't have to be huge. I mean, that'd be great. We should work towards that. But baby steps are okay. We understand this. Pattern of growth into conformity to Christ's likeness. Martin Luther, again, I probably quoted him too much today, but he, he says that it looks like this. He says, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it has already done them and is always doing uh, at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works and knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. As the one talking and talking, it's convicting. Not only are we as believers to stand confidently on God's word, even in the midst of trials and temptations, But also, we need to be serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a joy to stand here and preach this on a day when, on a week, when we have, so many have worked so hard, particularly over the last few months, to serve one another. Not just in the building. That's sort of the tangible, in this moment of history of Logansville Church thing that we can all see. But in knowing that there are those who are praying who are praying for those who are suffering, who are praying for those who are facing challenges in one form or another, knowing that there are those who are willing to bring meals to those who need help, demonstrating your faith, putting your faith to work, loving one another. We shall love and serve one another is a working out of our faith. If we're going to be a spiritually mature people, we must do what God wants us to do. We must be what God wants us to be because faith without works is dead. Works without faith is useless. And so we trust in the promises of God and we understand that he will save us from our sins and we will will work for him out of obedience and love and worship. 
We will serve one another out of obedience and love and worship. I believe this is a church with a mighty faith, a faith in Christ and his finished work. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the teachings of James, writing to a church that is scattered because of persecution, and we see what is, we maybe imagine what is ahead for us in the future as a church, as a people in a nation that is uh, turning more and more toward evil, evil that is creeping in all around us and even not just creeping anymore, it's rushing headlong. We understand that we, our children, our grandchildren will face persecution that we've not experienced before. Lord, that's the type of people that James is writing to, urging them to hold fast, to love one another, to work out our faith with fear and trembling, to serve one another. And in so doing, we serve our great Savior. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to consider these things, to hide them in our heart, to hold fast to them that we might be a people who are full of faith. And Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we know that our faith is in something, that it is in the finished work of Christ, that it is in all of your promises that find their fulfillment in Christ. Lord, we come to the table this morning uh, tasting, holding in our hands the bread and the cup, We come to the table to communion, Lord, together to proclaim Christ's death. Lord, we come here knowing that our faith isn't just misplaced or in something out there, but that it is in something that is real, a Savior who is real, who died on the cross for our sins that we might live for him. And so we come to this table this morning, Lord, rejoicing, rejoicing that you have sent your Son, your only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We come to the table this morning to proclaim his death until he returns, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to be reminded that blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Father, we rejoice this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.